As I look around the room this morning, I know most of you have received Christ and your soul is anchored steadfast. But I also look around the room this morning and I see a handful of you in which I'm not sure that you have received Christ and you have not anchored your soul to who God is and what he has done for you in the gift of Jesus. Whether you have received Christ or whether you have not received Christ, we come to a text this morning which we all must hear over and over and over again as the plainest, straightest, simplest statement of God regarding our need. In many pulpits, in many churches, there is occurring what I believe Paul talks about in 2 Timothy chapter 2, a preaching of irreverent babble that leads to more and more ungodliness. And this morning, we come to a passage of Scripture which if we are faithful to preaching it, it should cleanse this pulpit from irreverent babble and it should cleanse our hearts from ever wanting to stray towards ungodliness. And so this morning, if you're here and you're hearing this for the first time, I want you to know I'm going to call on you to make a choice at the end. And the Holy Spirit is going to be calling upon you. And the Word of God is going to be calling upon you. And our Father in heaven will be looking with expectation. I'm just going to read this last verse of chapter 6. We're going to pray, ask the Holy Spirit to help us, and then we're going to get to work. So says God, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just say thank you so much for this amazing gift that you have given to us. Help us to cherish it as we ought, to walk in it as you have called us. And this morning, Lord, help us as a congregation to preach it to those who may never have heard or who may have never trusted. Work miracles among us today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Once in a while in the Bible, there's going to be a tremendous sentence that just sums up the whole Word of God in one very straightforward, one very plain passage. And this sentence is one of them. It's not the only one. We encounter these verses throughout the Scripture from time to time. For example, Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, the prophet Micah says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Or another one, the one we all memorized, those of us who went to Sunday school as kids, and we were, I'm sure, all of us made to memorize this famous passage, most famous passage of Scripture in all the world, I think, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is the whole Bible in one sentence. But there are other sentences, as I said, which do well to capture this same sentiment. Consider, for example, the statement that the Philippian jailer made recorded for us in Acts chapter 16. Sirs, he says to Paul and Silas, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they responded, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. 
Or how about this one from the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 to 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that, the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Or maybe this one from the book of Revelation, chapter 3. Behold, Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Today, hear the knocking, church. Hear the Lord tapping on the door of your heart. Now, this sentence here in Romans chapter 6 is one of those tremendous and singular sentences in the Bible that sums up the whole situation. And it tells us everything that we need to know. It speaks of our vast and infinite need. It speaks to the infirmity and the instability of our heart to trust and to believe in God, to desire righteousness. And it also speaks of his gracious and merciful, his gift that he's given to us. This singular, powerful, explosive verse should strike in all of us both a sense of terror at the unrelenting and utterly tormenting sentence of God upon our sins. But it shouldn't leave us in that terror. It should call us forward. It should throw also out to our hearts, fearful though they may be, a warm sense of joy, a recognition of the love that God has for all of us, not to leave us there in that dark place of judgment and sentence. And so I'm about to read this to you this morning. But before I do, you probably need to prepare yourselves. When I read this scripture, It should stir deep into your hearts. It should penetrate all the way down into the nooks and the crannies and the recesses, the dark places where you don't like to go, but where God still sees. It should produce a sensation in all of us of that hair raising on the back of our necks and the goosebumps on our skin, on our arms, the realization that we stand under enormous sentence. But again, it shouldn't leave us there. We should feel the warmth of joy at a gift that is freely offered to all of us today. Are you ready? The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. But the free, free gift, which none of us deserve and for which none of us need labor, The free gift that God wants to give to us today is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The first part of that verse is the story of our entire species, all of humanity. It is summarized neatly for us in half a sentence. Paul says in the beginning of Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And that's really the whole story. It is the whole record of humanity from its beginning in the Garden of Eden until this sorrowful 
present hour in which you and I find ourselves. When Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit which God told them in the day in which they ate of it, they would surely die. They sensed in their shame, in a realization of their nakedness, that they were now on a trajectory towards death. And as they looked into the still silent face of their son Abel, having been murdered by his brother Cain, they began to realize with horror just exactly what that meant, what exactly the wages of sin entailed. And it serves as God's period at the end of the sentence, the wages of sin is death. In the antediluvian world before the flood, as the flood is taking place, Noah would have gazed out from the ark upon the deep waters flowing across the earth. And every swollen and bloated corpse floating and rocking on the surf, the destroyed life of every guilty man and every innocent beast, every single life lost on that day would serve as God's exclamation point to this day of the sentence that the wages of sin is death. When fire falls down from the angry fist of God out of heaven and burns up Sodom and Gomorrah for all their iniquity and all their arrogance and all their haughtiness, all of it being manifested in their pursuit of unnatural desires. When his fire rains down, every charred and blackened skeleton, every piece of destroyed debris that comes tumbling down to the earth on that day serves once again as an exclamation point that God is sending to you and me to this very day, and it is an exclamation point at the end of this sentence, the wages of sin is death. In the dark night, when the angel of death passed through the land of Egypt, the wail and the cry of every parent, having discovered in the crib, in the cradle, in their bed, the dead bodies of every firstborn child, all of it, the bereaved families of Egypt crying and wailing, all of it, serves as an exclamation point for this text. The wages of sin is death. In that dark and horrid moment when the angel of God passed over the camp of the Assyrians as they stood entrenched against Jerusalem, and the angel passed through that camp, and in one fell swoop, in one single hour, over 186,000 soldiers of Sennacherib lay dead in their beds, in their tents. It is but another illustration of the truth of this text that the wages of sin are death. And on and on we could go to the sacking of Rome in 70 AD, to the conquests that spread across Europe through the Middle Ages, to the present wars of today, the First Great World War of 1914, in which they said it was a war so bloody, so horrific, as to be the end of all wars, every life of the millions lost, serving as an exclamation point that our sins unleash a torrent of bloodshed. And the war that we said would be the end of all wars, well, it wasn't a very long pause. Now, was it? Just a few years later, World War II unfolds. And if we thought that the bloodshed was tragic in World War I, it was even more tragic in World War II. The wages of sin is death. 
And if you're looking for the greatest exclamation point of all, look no further than when Christ died on the cross. Sinless, not deserving of death. Jesus, God's perfect son, the perfect man of righteousness who knew no sin. Scripture tells us that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And he goes to that cross and he dies for our sins. God having sent him there on our behalf. And so if you're hearing a gospel that says that sin is merely a mild irritation, if you're hearing a gospel that says that sin is not good, but ultimately we can get along with it, if you're hearing a gospel that somehow encourages you to stay in your sins rather than throwing yourself at the mercy of Jesus Christ, you're hearing a false gospel. You're being told a lie And you are far from the grace that God wants to give to you. Indeed, there is no escaping the judgment of God. It is appointed for sinful men, men of iniquity, men and women of infirmity, men and women who lack the courage to pursue the truth, men and women who are so needy for others to like them. All of us, all, all unrighteous men and women, all of us, for all of us it is appointed to die. And then comes the judgment. The reason I know we are all sinners is that we are all facing death. Every single one of us in this room, if you've ever known sickness, if you've ever known disease, if your body has ever broken down, if you've ever suffered, if you've gotten older, you know you're approaching the grave. And that tells me, and it ought to tell you, that there's a problem. Because God has said in his word that on every single heart, there is this desire for eternity. We don't want to die. And yet, we are all approaching the grave. If you didn't have sin in your life, you wouldn't be dying. The fact that you are dying should tell us all, and you most importantly, that you have sinned. And this is true for you, and it's true for me, it's true for everyone. It is inescapable, it is universal. The rich man in his mansion, the poor man in his hovel, both facing death. It is as inescapable for the queen in her boudoir as it is for the king sitting on his throne. Small and great alike, we all are facing death. The philosopher, for all of his wise prognostications, the fool sitting on a clump of clod, both alike, regardless of their intelligence, regardless of their academic learning, both facing death. All of us need to come face to face with the reality that death is universal and we are all going to die. It is a tragedy and a shame for any one of us to pass our days on this journey, walking on this path from the cradle to the grave, oblivious to the inevitable hour that God has appointed for all of us to die and then face his judgment. It would be to live like a fool and to be an idiot. So don't live like a fool. Don't be stupid today. You say, Pastor, what should we do? Where should we turn? The wages of sin, Pastor, are death. I have sinned, and I know 
that the wages I have earned for myself is to face the death penalty. We all face a certain and inevitable rendezvous with the grim reaper, and we are all of us left with the question, what should we do? That is the way that that famous literary work, The Pilgrim's Progress, begins. It's an allegory, an extended allegory on the Christian life, and we meet the central character, Christian, and in the opening pages of that book, he is described as having read the book, and he is filled with such a great sadness at what he reads in this book. He reads that verse from Hebrews chapter 10, it is appointed for man to die once and then the judgment, and he begins to cry out with a loud cry, and a character happens to be walking by named Evangelist. And Evangelist says to Christian, why are you crying with such a great cry? And Christian's response is, I have read it in the book that it is appointed for me to die and then face the judgment. I am neither willing, and by that what he means is, I am not wanting to die, but I am also not able to stand in the judgment. What am I to do? And evangelist says, look, there are two gates, a wide gate on a broad path, but ignore that gate and look there at that narrow little tiny gate. Take that one. And as Christian looked, behold, beyond the gate was a path that led up a hill. And though this is allegory, it speaks to real truths. And you and I need to understand that that hill towards which evangelist pointed Christian is a real hill. That hill is the hill of God's love. It is the mercy of God. It is the pardon of God. It is the free offer of salvation of God given to you and to me. And that hill has a real name. In the Hebrew, it was called Golgotha. In the Latin, it's referred to as Calvary. Translated into English, we understand its true title to be the place of the skull. And it was a little hill just outside of Jerusalem where about 30, 33 AD, Jesus Christ, who never sinned and never did anything wrong, was nailed to the cross for your sins and for my sins, giving proof to the statement. When God says the wages of sin is death, this is a payment that must be made. Either you can make it, you can receive that payment, that payment of death, or God, in sending his son Jesus, can make that payment, can receive that punishment in your behalf. As we look at this passage, the first thing it says to us is that the wages of sin is death, but the second thing that it says to us is that salvation is a gift. It is something that we receive, not something which we earn, not something which we can take for ourselves. And that's important. It is the gift of God. It is something that God does for us that we cannot do for ourselves. If a man were in the midst of a vast, infinite sea drowning, somebody would have to save him. If a man were in the midst of a hot, burning desert, somebody would have to bring him water. 
If a man were trapped in the midst of a forest here in British Columbia with fire raging all around him, somebody would have to pluck him up from amidst that fire. And it is the same with you and me. We recognize we're under the sentence of death. We understand we deserve this judgment. We cannot get out of it. There is no escape. We only have God, and he only sends Jesus. Which is to say, if you would receive this gift, you receive it only through Jesus Christ, and you receive it as a gift. Titus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 says that he saved us, not because of works done by us, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he pours out richly on us through Christ Jesus, who is described there as being our Savior. But I think the passage that most closely parallels this one comes from Ephesians chapter 2. Here Paul says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the same author in a different letter to the church at Ephesus says something almost identical. It's a little different, but it sounds very similar. He makes this statement, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is, he says, the gift of God, not a result of works so that no man can boast. How do we claim this gift? Paul has given us that answer in Ephesians chapter 2. We claim it by believing in Jesus. It is the gift of God. The wages of sin, Scripture tells us very plainly, very straightforwardly, the wages of sin is death. You and I are dying. There is no doubt we have sinned. But the free gift of God is eternal life, which we can have if we will place our faith in Jesus. So we can be saved if we stand in faith, with faith in Christ. The only thing we bring to this transaction is no righteousness, no, no, nothing in us deserving any kind of meritorious consideration from God. The only thing we bring to the cross are the sins that we've committed which made Jesus' sacrifice necessary. And that is incredibly good news. If you would be saved and have eternal life, all you have to be is a sinner. All you have to bring are your sins. And all you need do is place your faith in Christ. When we trust in Jesus Christ, the scriptures tell us we receive eternal life. Can I just speak about eternal life for a second? What a wonderful promise, isn't it? The gift of God is eternal life. Now, of course, on its face, it's speaking about the quantity. You're here this morning, young or old. Perhaps you recognize your life is quickly running out. Just last night, my daughter pulls out an iPad that belongs to my wife in which she has stored all of my kids' baby pictures all the way from the day we brought them home up until pictures just taken just a few weeks ago. And I'm, you know, flicking across the screen, looking at all these pictures. I could not help but break down in tears. 
it seems like just yesterday, I brought them home. And here we are 13 years later, and they've grown up so fast. They tell me that time is moving at the same speed as it always has. But I don't believe it. When I was young, I couldn't wait to be old. The older I get, how I miss being young. You laugh, but it's the truth. My days are numbered, and they're counting down like sand slipping through an hourglass. Grain by grain, everyone is leaving me, and my moment is ending. Because I am but a mist in the wind, but a vapor quickly blown away. And every day I live, I realize how true the word of God is and how wise that exhortation is that is given to me. But in Jesus, the promise is this. You will have life and you will have eternal life. You will not die. You will not stay in the grave. You will go on and on for all of eternity. This life that Christ offers to us can never be fragmented. It can never be divided. It can never be subtracted from. It can never be destroyed. And despite our best efforts, it cannot be corrupted. It is never stained with impurity, and it is built on the internal endowment and endowment that we receive, which we only receive from Jesus Christ. This means it lasts forever. And because of who Christ is, it must last forever. The scriptures over and over and over again promise us that this life will go on and on and on. It says in John 3.16 that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have what? Eternal, everlasting, never-ending, forever and ever life. Or John 5.24, Jesus himself speaking to us, making this promise, truly, truly, he says... I say to you, Jesus talking to you, you in the balcony, you here in the room, all of you, those listening online, Jesus is saying, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal, never-ending, forever and ever life. He does not come into judgment, Jesus promises. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death into life. What a great promise. There is no such thing anywhere in all of the word of God as being sometimes partly saved and sometimes partly condemned. There is no such thing in all of the word of God as being sometimes lost and sometimes found. My children will say to me sometimes, my homework, I think I've lost it. Well, it's real simple. Do you know where it is? No. Well, it's lost. No, 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 I'm not not willing to say that just yet. You don't know where it is. Listen, church, if you trust in Jesus, God always knows exactly where you are. You are never lost. There's no such thing in the scriptures as saying, oh, I'm kind of lost, but kind of found. No 
way. That is not what we mean by eternal life. There's no such thing as being partly alive and yet also partly dead. You're either alive or you're dead. And there's no such thing as being partly justified and partly condemned. You are either forever saved and saved forever, or you were never saved at all. Understand that when it comes to being born again by the blood of Christ, you are not partly born and partly unborn. You are either fully born or you are still dead. Praise the Lord that there is no such doctrine anywhere in all of the scriptures to say something like, oh, you might be saved. Oh, we, we trust and we hope you can be saved if you believe in Jesus. Not at all. The, pre- the promises are there. They are bedrock. They are plain. They are straightforward. If you believe in Jesus, you live forever. And we can never be lost. Never. We can never be lost. The soul that comes to Jesus is saved forever and ever, as God has made it plain to us. The wages of sin is death, to which every Christian must say soberly and somberly, Amen. But the free gift of God is eternal life, to which all Christians can say with joy, Hallelujah, praise God. But one thing to caution you against this morning. There is a quantity of life and there is a quality of life. If you've looked in the photo book at pictures of your kids or for some of us, if you've looked in the mirror at the gray hairs or the lack of hair entirely, you know your time is running out. And all too often, the preaching of the gospel has been nothing more than an intellectual acknowledgement that there was a man who lived 2,000 years ago who died on the cross for you. And if you would just understand that he was a historical person, you can live forever. The offer of quantity of days is made with no real understanding of the quality of life that will inherit those days. The scriptures say to us that the wages of sin is death, and it is. You will and are dying. But the free gift of God is eternal life. But how would we have it? We must have it, it says, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Don't miss that last expression. Now, I could get grammatical with you, and in fact, I will because I love grammar. This expression is in the locative. It doesn't say through Jesus Christ. It doesn't say alongside Jesus Christ. It doesn't say you can be saved just knowing about Jesus Christ. It says you must be in Jesus Christ. Paul envisions here in a very real, very grammatical sense in terms of how the scriptures are presented to us, inerrant, infallible, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that if you would be saved, you must place yourself into Christ. He pictures it in terms of a sphere. There's outside of Christ, living life however you choose to live it, and then there is in Christ. You must be in Christ. And he further clarifies by saying that Jesus Christ must be your Lord. Christ Jesus, he says, our Lord. 
And in the context of everything he says in all of chapter 6, this becomes very plainly obvious. We won't go back and rehash all of the arguments that we've made since verse 1 of chapter 6 over previous weeks, but we will just go back as far as verse 20. And I invite you to look with me. Notice what Paul says here. He says, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And so much preaching in so many pulpits amounts to nothing more than just simply believe that Jesus is a historical figure who died for you on the cross 2,000 years ago and then go on and live however you like. But Paul's concern in the context of all of chapter 6 and coming to a head really here in verses 20 to 23 seems to be that in Christ there is a radical transformation that takes place. You were free from righteousness and bound to sin. You could do nothing but continue on in a pattern of behavior, in actions, words, thoughts, and deeds that only further incriminated you and only brought further condemnation. You might say to yourself, well, it was just a little white lie, and yet you couldn't stop lying even if you wanted to. That little white lie that you told this time and that time and the next time and over and over and over again was, from the perspective of God, just as violent and just as offensive as a nuclear bomb being dropped on the throne of heaven. And God intended to respond, meeting that force with the force of his own judgment. Your little white lie was an attempt to throw God off of his throne. And in the day that you sinned, you became bound to your sin. You couldn't stop sinning even if you wanted to. You were free only in one respect. You couldn't live a life of righteousness. You were free from that, bound to sin. And Paul goes next, verse 21. Next thing he says, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? To be saved by Christ is to be ashamed of your former life. To be saved by Jesus is to look upon that time you lived before you knew him and to be horrifically embarrassed, ashamed, saddened by what you see. Paul says there in verse 21, the fruit, what was the fruit you were getting in those things that you were ashamed of? He uses this metaphor of a plant. We all have gardens. We all know friends who have gardens, and they plant this stuff in the spring, and sure enough, by mid to late summer, stuff grows. There is fruit to be plucked. For most of us, it's an overabundance of tomatoes. We all plant way too many tomato plants, and then we have nothing but tomatoes. Listen, your whole life you planted nothing but sin, and guess what the fruit was that you harvest and will harvest? death. Here he says fruit. What was the fruit you were getting? But you'll notice in verse 23, he calls it the wages of sin. So you worked, you labored, you toiled, and you receive a paycheck. You are by nature planted, rooted in the ground, producing a kind of fruit. Whether you understand it in terms of a paycheck, utilizing the metaphor of, of payment for services rendered, or whether you understand it as the intrinsic nature of who you are before God apart from Christ as a sinner, either way, the conclusion is the same. However you understand it, you produced a fruit, you earned a consequence, and it was death, and it was because you were totally free from righteousness. But now, what he, look what he says again, tail end of verse 21. The end of those things is death, verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin 
and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end is eternal life. He calls us slaves belonging to God. So when he makes that statement in verse 23, we all like to hear it real simple, just understand that Jesus was a historical person who lived 2,000 years ago, and that will be enough. But that is not the thrust of what Paul is saying. That is the concluding statement to an extended argument. And the argument is this. If you would believe in Jesus and be saved and have eternal life, you now are free from sin. Your ransom has been paid. You've been purchased. You've been bought back. You were a slave to unrighteousness. Its end The fruit it produces, the paycheck it earns, was death. But if you trust in Jesus, you do so knowing that when he purchases you, he buys you all the way or not at all. And when you are owned by Christ, you now actually are free by the power of his spirit washing over you, the blood of the Son atoning for your sins to live righteously. Paul calls it sanctification. It's a process that will play out over the course of your whole life. You will mature. You will go from one step of spiritual maturity to the next step. You will undoubtedly have setbacks. But what is the end of this long journey of sanctification? Paul says, eternal life. Look what he says The fruit you get now leads to sanctification, and its end is eternal life. We offer you today, by God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit, the offer of forever. Too many times in our presentation of the gospel, we speak of the quantity of life, and we fail to mention that the only life that will live forever must have a certain quality to it. It must be a righteous life that walks in faithful obedience and joyful submission to Jesus Christ. That is the invitation that is there for you today. Young ones in the balcony, friends in the main sanctuary, The grace that God gives you is to set you free from the penalty of your sin. The grace that God gives you is the power to walk in obedience to him. And the grace that God gives you is the grace of knowing Jesus Christ. We speak of him not as a historical figure that lived 2,000 years ago, Some of you might even be weirded out by this from time to time. It's as though when we speak of him, we have this idea that he is right here with us right now. And that's because he is. To be saved is to know and to treasure a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. To rest in the atonement that he gives you and to strive holding hands with him as he leads you down the life of sanctification to the goal of eternal life. And that's what we have for you this morning. Not that we have any power in and of ourselves to give it to you, 
but as messengers of Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, as ambassadors on behalf of God the Father, we implore you today, be reconciled to Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much for your word and its clarity. We know, Lord, that we deserve, by what we've done, a wage that we have fully earned. We deserve, by the intrinsic nature of our lives and how we have lived, to harvest a particular kind of fruit. We see it clearly taught in your word. That fruit, that wage is death. But you've given us grace to hate those things we once delighted in and to walk in a new way, in a better way, in a joyful way. And the end of that path, Lord, is the life that lives forever with you. My prayer, Lord, is that if there are any here today who have wanted eternal life but have not wanted your son as their master, as their Lord, that you would open their eyes to see something which I can only vaguely but dimly show them, that there is incredible joy in knowing your son, having you as our best friend, and every day striving with the grace that you give us to live a life of obedience, all of this given by faith. Lord, if there are any here today who have not surrendered to you in obedience, have not trusted your son for the forgiveness of their sins, we pray, Lord, that you'd help them to see that they are walking down a path of incredible danger, a path that will end in death. If there are any here today, Lord, who have not surrendered and been faithful to baptism, or to any one of a number of other things that you've called them to. I pray, God, that you would just impress upon their heart the joy of walking with you in every decision. We ask, Father, that your spirit convict today, that you would open eyes to see their need, and that you would reassure them on your word of your gracious provision. Do that, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. For all of us, we are all called to turn our eyes to Jesus, to follow after him. The worship team is going to come and lead us, and I invite you to stand as we sing this last song. One of the things that God has impressed upon my heart is that if we make a call for you to trust in Jesus, we are wrong not to offer you the immediate opportunity to come forward and to share that decision and to make it public. I was convicted of this by reading our Lord's words in Matthew chapter 10. He says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. In this moment, you can choose. You can choose to confess and acknowledge Christ before the world. Or you can choose to continue walking in disobedience, refusing to acknowledge him, denying him. Don't leave here today without confessing Christ. If you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is convicting you. 
Our church is going to sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus, and our prayer is that you would see him today and forsake everything and follow him. If that's you, you come down as we sing, and you talk to me, and you acknowledge your need for Christ, and we'll pray with you. Don't leave here today without receiving Christ. As we sing, if the Holy Spirit is impressing upon your heart, you come.